the flaw takes a different tack than a lot of the sort of popular journalistic writing and the popular films um, that have been made about the crisis. Instead of looking at the individual actors who are bad seeds, malfeasers, evildoers, um, it looks at the question of why did those people have so much money to play with? Why does Wall Street have so much of our society's money to do with as it will? And so the film connects then to larger questions of income inequality, wealth inequality, the changing composition of the American workforce. And so this question of labor is at the center of this question of capital. Um, and part of the film, I'm a historian, I wrote a wonkish book on the history of debt in America that addresses lots of these issues. It looks at not the, I mean there is technical stuff, there's CDO squares and securitization and the like, but looks at the policy setting that made all these things possible. It looks at the transformation of the American economy of the 20th century. And so that's how I got pulled into this. I, I am but a, a pretty face in a film about ugly things. The more that we talk about individuals in this, I realize that we were talking a lot about characters and storytelling. It, sometimes the characters and storytelling overshadows the larger structures that we really need to think about and not just look at blaming individuals. I agree that humans have always been depraved. Humans have always been liars and fabulous and hucksters, particularly in my wonderful country. Um, why were they able to do this at this particular moment? And that is a story not of individuals, but of structures and policies, as I think the flaw, and I argue in my books, um, that this is the case. They did a very nice job, I think, with the film in connecting characters and the the larger structure of the economy. I just want to say one thing before we get to the Q&A. People ask me all the time, they say, Lewis, how do we, how do we fix this? How, what, what can we do? What can we do? And I say, look, it's very straightforward. We just need to make it easier to invest in businesses than in things that are useless. Stop investing in houses and start investing in small and medium-sized business like Murray's Cheese. Murray can't get a loan. Why can't Murray get a loan? Why can't he? And the question they say is, well, it's all Wall Street innovation that makes this possible. But the truth of the matter is that it isn't. The first mortgage-backed security was created in the Housing Act of 1968. It was a public-private partnership in finance and financial innovation that got all these kinds of sophisticated financial engineering methods off the ground. And what we need is something not just Freddie Mac, but what I would call Bobby Mac. Something that makes it possible to securitize business loans for small businesses the way you securitize small housing loans. Now, of course, the businesses are riskier than houses because you can't foreclose as easily, but surely those geniuses can figure it out. And the housing industry is based on a set, initially a set of standards created by the government in the 1930s. We're going to talk about the New Deal. The FHA created standards. Houses are as illiquid as businesses by nature. We've all lived in different places, don't we? None of us, very few of us, live in exactly the same house. Same with businesses. Yet, there's a common vocabulary that we already have to evaluate businesses. And we do it every day, through accounting, through evaluation. And we can bring those standards through federal policy to the market. We can enable the grading and trading of business debt at a small and medium-sized level the way we have for our largest corporations. Our big growth is in small business and medium-sized business, not in the Colossuses. And we need to figure out a way to do that, and I think we can. And as soon as we do that, we don't need to worry about punishing people. We don't need to worry about 
giving them sticks because we'll have a carrot that will actually lead them in a way that helps them and helps us. And it is possible and won't cost a dollar, won't cost anything. Just we need to create some standards the way we do with the FHA. And that's my pitch for history class and uh, what I'm gonna tell students when they ask me about this. So anyway, I'd like to open the floor up to q and I think we have five minutes. Thanks, um, I thought that was fascinating, uh, especially that end bit which sort of revealed in those strings of numbers people's lives in a, in a second and it was very moving. Um, I was interested though that you focus on the flaw being in how you finance uh, either houses or businesses and not uh, in the other major element in that clip we saw which is about the inequality of income and the, the rising inequality of income and I would like to ask you about that but I would also before I ask you to answer me I'd like to say that that has been worrying me for the last two days in this room and I feel a sense of colluding in an acceptance of that in almost all of our conversations so I'm, I'm really interested to hear your response. Well, I think it's an important question, a question that for too long has been ignored in our country. Um, it's been masked by GDP growth. We're focused on all the wrong indicators. If you look at the median male wage, it's been stagnant or falling since the early 1970s in America. And our wages have gone up as the creative classes, as the well-educated classes. There have been huge returns to advanced degrees, except for perhaps PhDs in history. Um, <laughs> But um, that said, your, your question is well taken, and I would encourage you at some point to see the rest of the film, which talks a lot about this, how we went from a manufacturing economy, which had a relatively even distribution of income, to a post-industrial economy, which doesn't. And um, just a few days ago, I was reading the Washington Post about uh, a group of economists who had actually gone through all the tax returns. Can you imagine how fun that was? Um, and they asked themselves, who is actually making all the money in the top 0.1%? And it turns out only 3% of that top 0.1% are sports heroes and celebrities and all the rest. 40% are executives. Not just executives of financial companies, but non-financial companies who have replaced workers with machines here or replaced our expensive American workers with cheaper labor abroad. And if you go to a factory, how many of you have been to an actual factory? Oh, lovely. Um, the one I first went to, my very first one from Baltimore, was the Coca-Cola factory in Baltimore, Maryland. And Baltimoreans love their Coke. And there were six people that worked there. Six people that worked there and made big bags of goo for us to deliciously sip. And I think that's part of the problem, too. Um, so next question. How do we see the film? Um, it, you can see it in Britain. Uh, I am, I'm just a talking head, so I, I don't know how that... I wish we had better distribution. I'm not exactly sure why we haven't gotten distribution everywhere yet, but hopefully soon. So I would encourage you to write to the director, David Sington. There's a website, theflawmovie.com, I think, where that can be understood. I know that's available for private screenings. Or a particularly anglosphere phenomenon. Um, and when we think about other economies, particularly, for instance, the German economy, yeah. where, as I understand it, relatively far less is in property of various kinds, particularly domestic property, and far more is invested in SMEs. Is that right, and is it a, a valid comparison? 
I think it is. I mean, I, I think when you flip to the, through The Economist and you just look at the back page and you look at the German export, it's the, it's the biggest export-led Western economy. And it's because they're smart about their policies. They do very smart things. They do things like make a price for energy that you can sell back to the grid so pig farmers can borrow money for solar panels and generate a whole green industry from the ground. Germans are good with policy. They don't think that state and the market are oppositional. They realize that the state is the foundation of the market and that we need to create ways to make that more possible. And I think that's something we've gotten desperately wrong in this country. Any other questions? Yes. Um, again, talking a little about the inequality of income, one of the most fascinating data sets I did read was the, is the Pew annual survey looking at um, the American dream and whether it's still alive, etc., etc. And, and what's, what still fascinates me here is that in spite of all the statistics and the research, um, people kind of still believe that, that the future is going to get better. This, this, still, people believe in the, de in, in the American dream, even though the reality of the statistics suggests that it's, it's not really there anymore. How, how do you explain that? Is it just clever politicians? Yeah, we're bad at math. Um, <laughs> And I, I just think that's, if you want to look for an American character, um, we've always been very optimistic. We're an optimistic people. We, you know, and uh, I, I can't really explain it. I'm, I'm glad that it is the case, um, but and it's certainly something that sets us apart. But it can blind us as well, that we think we don't need to do anything that, to set things right or they'll work out on their own. And they didn't in the 1930s. Um, it wasn't just a bunch of uh, people who strapped down and got serious about living in the 1930s. It was a series of smart policies that reoriented the economy and got us back out. Um, and not just, a, not just the war, it was you know, the creation of the electronics industry, the creation of the defense industry, the creation of the aircraft industry through a quasi-government corporation called the Defense Plant Corporation that created the aerospace industry from the ground up during World War II. It wasn't war, it was the reorientation of the American economy to growth industries through public policy. And then we can do it again. Yes. Um, speaking of the American character, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the next, say, 10 years as an economist? Um, I, I like to think that I'm, I'd like to be optimistic, and I think that there's the possibility of it being optimistic, uh, but I wouldn't think that income inequality is going to go away really fast. I think that it's, it's a very difficult trouble, problem, and I hope this room full of journalists can help us focus on that, can help get the word out that we should be thinking about this as a serious issue and not just worry about punishing a few guys and women for making too much money. I think it distracts us from the larger crisis. I mean, it's an excellent question. I mean, I think most Americans who are young think they're going to be rich someday. I think that's what it is. I mean, if you want to say it, it's hegemony. You know, it is just the belief that you're going to be rich. Why do half of Americans play the lottery? Right? There's a, there's a belief, uh, an optimism. It gets back to that. Why that happened in Britain? Because you guys are not hopeful at all. I don't know. So you explain that to me. But then again, you have a monarch. Yes? Now, these people are on strike because of cuts. And the cuts have come about in the public mind, and I'm not an expert in this, but the public mind goes as thus. Bankers have caused this to happen. Bankers are getting away with it. They are still getting bonuses. We're getting the cuts. We're going on strike. It's a, it's a vicious circle. It's not a virtuous circle. It's a vicious circle with sort of 
it's sort of meaningless because the cuts have to happen. But the general consensus is that we, the people on the ground, are paying for these guys, and these guys haven't paid anything like their due, and they haven't been punished enough. Mm -hmm. And why should we carry on giving them slack? There's a lot of anger out there. It really is. And I think they have a right to be angry. I mean, it's hard to see no, how... You just said that they shouldn't be blamed. They're just trying to do their best and, you know, the finances, it was wrong to, to blame the financiers and, you know, we live in a cap capitalist setup and, 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 the, and, and the, the bankers were just giving us what we wanted. I mean, who ultimately is culpable? I think that to focus on individuals as the cause of this will not solve anything. I understand why they're angry. I'm angry. You're angry. But I think that saying we just need to punish a few, like we did with Enron, and then things don't change at all. We need to figure out ways to create carrots and not just sticks. We need to figure out ways to harness capitalism for social ends. Capitalism is not going to go away. But to a certain extent, people have to be responsible for their actions. You know, a lot of action, a lot of class legal action was taken against Imperial Tobacco, uh, the tobacco giants for giving people lung cancer when they knew that the research was all there and they hid it away, they buried it away. And people have very successfully brought cases against the tobacco giants for, for doing just that. You know, arguably the bankers knew that it was wrong bundling up bad debt and selling it on and, and giving people who couldn't afford, giving people who had no work, giving people who had no hope of paying back the, the mortgages. They knew it was wrong giving these people loans. I mean, I give you France. France has had a much, much shallower dip into recession and out again because the French banks will not lend to people who cannot prove that they can pay back and they will not give people 90% loans. They are very, very cherry about what they lend. Let me much. ask you a question. I mean, is it the banker's fault who is selling a service? We were talking earlier, Anna was talking about investor demand. Investor demand is what caused this. Pension funds no, I think it and is, the I think wealthy it is, I think who it is demanded... The fault. I think it is the banker's fault. The, okay. bankers, knew, the bankers knew they were buying bad debt. That's and right. The bankers, and the bankers know, you know what an interest-only mortgage means. Let's go kill all the bankers and then what know. happens. They don't understand. I mean, it, it, we'll replace them with other bankers who will do exactly the same thing. They'll do exactly the bankers same thing. Bankers are just so desperate to, for, their, for, their, for their premium, for their bonus. Okay, we need to finish. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you.